1: So we're back with toys on tap.
2: This is understanding bootlegs, part five. Scott, you're here. Part five.
3: Yes. Yeah. Where are yeah. we? Uh, well, we uh, today we're going to pack our bags, proverbially speaking or metaphorically <laughs> speaking, and we're going to take a little trip around the world uh, and look at different different sort of like regions and nations uh, around the world that are very well known for having sort of their own kind of material and aesthetic properties related to bootleg toys. Um, So this is very much a a global trip around the world uh, to look at what bootleg toys are in individual regions or nations, uh, just very quickly. So that's uh, just reading from my list of what I've got here as a preface. So that's Turkey, Mexico, Poland, Brazil, Argentina, Russia, China, Japan, Uh, as I said to you sort of off off camera or off mic, um, uh, Korean bootlegs would would also factor into some of that Asian bootleg stuff, but I don't know enough about the discourse because I just haven't gotten there in terms of my research yet. Um, But one of the things about this that's really interesting, I think is that on a material level, like in terms of how they're made um, and on a discursive level, meaning how they're discussed in their sort of countries of origin and the kind of political and economic conditions that bring about bootleg culture in each of these places I think is really interesting. Um, and so one something that I want to talk about again, because I think this is a theme that comes up time and again. So let's put this at the top and ask everyone listening, if you're still listening five episodes in, two more to go, this one and one more, and then you won't have to listen to yeah. me for a while, um, is this theme of access. Right, so like bootleg toys are predicated, not just bootleg toys, but bootlegs in general as we understand them as objects that are sort of under prohibition are about granting access to said objects under whatever restrictions are being like sort of externally imposed. So again, the metaphor of like bootleg alcohol in the United States during the prohibition era, right? So the government says out the, the sale and distribution of alcohol is prohibited Uh, which means people can't get access to alcohol. So a black market emerges that gives them access to the thing that they want. So in this case, we can think of access in terms of a kind of Western, like North American, like media culture vis-a-vis character licenses and the sort of pop culture intellectual properties we've been talking about this whole time. So access is a really critical way, like a really critical path into understanding like why this work is made how this work is made, how it circulates in culture, because access can also mean financial access. The difference between a licensed object in a country where it's being exported and sold to because of import export taxes and all of that stuff will be astronomically greater than a lo fi hand injection, for example, Mexico, like a bootleg video game console that's been hacked Um, in one of the sort of gamer plazas of Mexico City will be astronomically cheaper than buying whatever uh, contemporary commercial game console is being imported from Japan or the United States, uh, simply because of import import export taxes. Um, You know, the global circulation of currency and the weight of particular doll, like the weight of the American dollar versus the Mexican peso, for example you know, or the ruble, like whatever. Like, so there's all this complicated sort of political and financial stuff that goes into why bootlegs exist. But the underlying premise, I think, that we can think about is access to these ideas and media properties, access to these characters through toys and other objects. Um, So there's a quick, I have a quick question. Yeah, sure. So uh, That kind of
2: pertains to this. So as we walk into... I, you know, what's weird. I almost just said the term Kmart as if that still existed for me, but that doesn't exist around here. So it was a weird thing that came to mind. So we walk into a Toys R Us when it did exist. And we say like, Oh, I want this toy off the shelf, this licensed yeah. figure. Yeah. When another country bootlegs knockoff, whatever you want to call it, that figure, they're yeah. not selling it in a store like that. Right. Or they are
3: it depends okay it's (laughs) you know i think that i think that so far with this with this series we've done a fairly good job of sort of laying out and unpacking things yeah the circulation of global capital and global licenses that is sort of the scaffolding upon which like bootleg culture is sort of built Uh is so fucking complicated man Okay. So there's a
2: possibility Um, of both it being sold. Yes, absolutely.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. And some of, yeah. And I think that some of that hopefully will become clear as we discuss it, because with each of those countries that I mentioned, I really do want to talk about the cultural conditions of those regions, because those cultural conditions influence how these things are made and how they're circulated and how they're, how they're like sort of regarded as objects and culture. Yeah. So, um, with that complicated stuff you know i think i think let's let's lay out the stakes here and let's try to unpack some of that complicated shit first Mm -hmm. um and let's before we go into each individual place you know um let let i want to talk about sort of the global phenomenon of a global marketplace vis-a-vis intellectual property the idea of an information economy where those ideas are the things that are bought sold rented licensed whatever and it's important to understand that different countries and different regions, uh, depending on their sort of political and cultural views, um, regard the, the act of copying and ownership in different ways. So who has the right to copy it? Who has the right to create what? How this is viewed by culture and policed or not? How these goods are made and circulated? All of that has to do with the political culture and cultural fabrics of any particular place. We have an understanding of something that looks like a retail marketplace which is very different, for example, than sort of the street markets of what we would call the developing world now, but that we could also call the second world. These aren't quite the, the, the poorest of developing countries, but those sort of middle state developing world countries, these large scale populations that have open air street markets in informal economies, for example, mm. that don't have the sort of antiseptic shopping mall retail experience, right? Yeah. Um, so that's one major difference. So. This is in a global marketplace, you know, just to reiterate this, this is complicated stuff. Licenses are often granted in specific regions by corporations to other corporations in different countries. And you can see this, and this is how we end up with stuff like Transformers, for example. So Hasbro licensed the Diaclone and some other transforming toy lines from Takara and a couple of other companies to sell in the US, right? Because the Diaclone line does not have any copyright in the US because it's in Japan. And this is a really important point too. There's no such thing as international copyright law, right? And I'll get, I'll I'll develop that in a second, but just here's some other stories like this. So Hasbro takes this stuff, rebrands it as Transformers, creates the transmedia sort of ecology of Transformers comics, cartoons, toys. We went over this last week. That's the Star Wars model. And then Diaclone becomes Transformers and then there's this cross licensing thing that starts happening between Takara Tomy and Hasbro because Takara Tomy also licensed G- the G- 12 inch GI Joe figures back in the day to sell in Japan, mm-hmm. right? Good. So this stuff is like this stuff is being sort of bought and sold using sort of like licensing agents and legal experts that would be hired by Hasbro who like know Japan and work in Japan in order to do this kind of work. And then likewise, with like Japanese companies having those same, there's a reason there's a Nintendo of America, for example. It's so Nintendo can basically copyright all of the stuff they do in Japan here easily because there's a corporate synergy. Yeah. Um, so GI Joe another example. It gets licensed from Hasbro to a company called Palatoy in the UK. Uh-huh. And that's where you get the action man line which then begets the Action Force line, which is based on Action Man, which technically Palitoy owns the license to, but then Palitoy goes back to Hasbro and starts licensing and producing uh, stuff from the 1980s GI Joe line into their Action Force line.
1: Mm-hmm. So
3: GI Joe is not GI Joe in the UK under these licensing agreements; it's Action Force. And the same thing: there are comics and the cartoons, and you know all of this stuff and like in foreign markets, that stuff would get dubbed over or translated. Uh, for example, in the UK, Ninja Turtles, which is something else I'll mention today. It's the Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles, not ninjas, because ninjas are somehow in martial arts are bad. Um, and you know. so there's like this other sort of like linguistic stuff that happens culturally because the UK doesn't have the same sort of preoccupation with violence in its, in its like youth media, for example, or at least that would be the discourse. Something about that, right? They're heroes, they're not ninjas. Ninjas are like Japanese assassins who kill people in the middle of the night, connotation of the word. And then Star Wars is another really excellent example. So we always think of Star Wars toys as being made by Kenner, except in Canada, they were made and distributed, they were distributed by Irwin toys. In Mexico, they were made and distributed in Mexico by Lily Letty. In France, it was Meccano. And in Spain, it was PBP slash POC toys. Same figures, different packaging for the region, um, which, which, again, is part of this sort of like larger global licensing scheme, right? Mm-hmm. So this kind of international licensing leads to similar toys under different branding, depending on who's licensing what to whom and where these licenses and license, licensees and licensors are and what that international relationship looks like. So, again, there's n- these, are, these are sort of deals made between companies and corporations through licensing agents and, and and intellectual property lawyers, because there's no such thing as an international copyright that will automatically protect a work throughout the world. Protection against unauthorized use in a particular country depends on the nation's, the, that particular country's laws and that region's laws. So you can think about this as being part of the, this is like I feel like this is like here's your here's your global economic lesson for today, everybody. Yeah. So this is part of the larger fabric of global globalized capitalism at this point, right? Where these IPs, characters, etc. are bought, sold, and rented across international borders. And usually they fall under international intellectual property organizations such as WIPO, which is the world Inter- international world intellectual property organization, which is also organ and copyright treaties. So there are organizations, there are international treaties. These govern the laws in numerous countries who sign on to them, but prosecute, but all of the violations of these laws still have to be prosecuted locally within that country. So if I violate American copyright law as a Canadian, there is nothing an American IP rights holder can do unless they have... A license in Canada, in which case they, I'm I am violating Canadian copyright law, not American copyright law. Under NAFTA, all of that gets gray and fucking blurry, and I don't even understand the legal like sort of like nuances yeah. of that. But this is just an example. So the trick, if you're if you're in a country like the United States, is to convince other countries to have the same copyright laws as you to protect your work, right? Which means that there's this whole invisible invisible legion of lawyers and licensing agents operating around the world at the behest of multinational corporations and I was thinking about this last night as I was falling down this rabbit hole and looking at the history of international copyright treaties and realizing like there are fucking literally armies of people doing this work every day
2: yeah I um, couldn't imagine the team that gets paid for by Disney to do this type of work.
3: oh dear god yeah yeah it's it it, it just like it's like, we've talked about going down the rabbit hole, like that's a rabbit hole that's so broad and so deep. It's like yeah. like that giant sinkhole in that new stupid family drama La Brea, which is just a remake of Land of the Lost on NBC. Yep. Uh, speaking of copying. Uh, anyway, so all of this to say, right? Like all of this sort of geopolitical lesson that I'm giving everybody right now shows us that thinking about the culture of copying regionally must be considered under the cultural conditions of that region because they can be very different. So as we move through this discussion, I wanna talk about those things, which I mentioned. Um, And one of the interesting things about this with particular regions that I'm gonna get to is that some of the the stuff I'm gonna talk about are bootlegs in the sense that we've been talking about them. And some of them are licensed toys in certain regions that actually feel like bootleg toys and I think are worth mentioning. Mm. So yeah, we're gonna take this trip around the world, uh, strap yourself in, and uh, which destination would you like to go to first, my friend?
2: Okay, so this will help you, maybe, or it'll help me, because it's like, when I think about the idea of licensing characters and figures and yeah. all those things, and then you have the countries that are just producing things without doing that every country that produces Star Wars figures is doing it for a different reason. Either it's to capitalize on it or they're making the knockoffs because they can't afford to license it or they don't know there's no agreement there, correct?
3: Right, yeah, or if there is an agreement, the, the like legal frameworks within whatever nation are so poor in terms of prosecuting copyright violation- That doesn't matter. That those things, that it doesn't matter. And that's, that's I think a big case in a lot of places. Great, um,
2: so let's head to Turkey first.
3: Yeah, I knew you were going to say Yeah. Uh, So, um, you know, can you enable... Oh, you already did it. Yeah, Um, professional now, week five. Look at you. Yeah, yeah, I don't even have to mention it. So I'm going to share my screen with you here. We're going to look at something that I think we're all aware of.
2: Yeah, and if you're waiting for photos this week, uh, we won't play sounds, but I will put the photos in order of the countries that we go in. I think so, that's a good idea. Yeah, on Monday we'll release Turkey now and then we'll just release different ones throughout the week that you'll get to see.
3: And keep in mind when you get to when you get to a country like Mexico, which I have firsthand on the ground knowledge of because I've spent so, like quite a bit of time there, like the amount of photos that I've sent you, like feel free to like prune. <laughs> so I was like, there's this and there's this and there's this. Yeah. So so it's interesting and this is something and, and maybe I can, uh, and, and this is a good segue into... Uh, so, of course, if we're speaking about Turkey and Star Wars,
0: we interrupted this broadcast of Toys on Tap to bring you this. Meanwhile, in a galaxy of bootleg treasures, DOV2, we have engine failure! We must crash land on DKE Toy Planet! Oh my! We're doomed! Wait! Salvation! Hooray! We're saved, DOV2. Limited edition custom artist made action figures in DKE Toys. Check out www.dkatoys.com for a full catalog. The Ray for Custom Action Figures. DKE.
3: When it's interesting, if you say Turkish Star Wars, some people think of the Turkish Star Wars film. And if you say Turkey and Star Wars, other people will think of the Uze line of Star Wars action figures that were produced in Turkey's. Turkey that are, are bootlegs. There's no copyright information. These are not licensed products. I don't know what I can say about Uze that hasn't been said, right? Is that they are alterations of particular characters. So I'm showing you the Blue Stars figure right now, mm-hmm. which is essentially a blue version of the snowtrooper. Um, but one of the interesting features of the Uze line, and I think I can show the other one there too, more than the fig, more than the fi, the figures and the colorways of the figures, I think that for Uze, one of the primary signifiers is the 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 backer cards. Mm-hmm. And so, what's really interesting about the backer cards is that you know this also has the stars war, which is something that a lot of like sort of bootleggers in North artist bootleggers to use, or war stars or whatever, like those kind of like combinations based on those two words and matching them up a little bit. Um, But the backer, what's significant about the backer cards is that they're not showing the character images from the movies, like the, like the North American releases, or most of the international releases, what they are is they're actually photographs of the toy itself. So blue stars is actually, um, you know, four of them on a, on a sort of desert diorama that was clearly photographed and then used. And then the imperial gunner, which is the one that everybody sort of comments on that's sort of the most interesting or at least kind of the, the clever funny one is that it's the Imperial Gunners control panel that he's sitting in front of is like uh, like, a, like a vintage, like 1980s, like pocket calculator, oh, I it. Um, which is great. And so this Turkey thing is interesting in, in terms of that copyright law stuff that we were talking about, right? So these figures, so for example, when, when I talked about the Turkish Star Wars film that actually has no connection to these toys, mind-blowing there yeah um that always blew me away because i thought they were interrelated and then i was like oh wait there's actually not a like not a definitive connection there um turkey um so one of the one of the things that happened over the past few days and i told him that i would give him credit for this and then he said you don't have to give him me credit for this is that uh uh dove and i had a conversation where he he pointed me to from dke toys he's probably not going to like that i name checked him here but dove i'm just saying thank you publicly because i wouldn't have found this article otherwise and good scholarship means acknowledging where the knowledge came from and so i had this conversation with dove yesterday in relation to last week's episode talking about turkey specifically and he pointed me to a 1998 uh comics journal interview with kevin eastman this is issue number 202 um, so this is really after like peak Turtles in that first round. Um, Kevin Eastman had sold his rights, I think at that point to Turtles, wholly to Peter Laird. It started his own in- independent publishing ventures that kind of tanked. And so like Comics Journal wanted to catch up with him about all this stuff. Um, and he talks about something that's really, really interesting in terms of Middle Eastern countries um, and licensing. So. Uh, I just want to read a couple of quotes here about, about like licensing in general, and then the Middle East in particular. And he says, these are different quotes from different parts of the same interview, but I didn't mm. include everything you know, for brevity or whatever. Yeah. Um, so the licensing world is a whole planet in itself. The world of cartoons and what can and can't be done, that's another completely different planet with a whole different set of rules. The same with movies, worldwide, worldwide copyright and trademark programs. Working with agents in countries we've certainly never been to, some we never heard of, in managing this whole program by the seat of our pants. We asked a lot of questions, we paid a lot of legal bills, and we figured it out as we went along. We tried to create a system out of a lot of things that were beyond us, sort of navigating this complicated sort of apparatus and network of international copyright. And this relates to to sort of the Turkish condition. And keep in mind that when I say that I'm anyway, wait, I'll, I'll read it and then, I'll, and then I'll, quali- <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll qualify my statement after the fact. Okay. In a lot of in a lot of cases, especially trademark suits, you need to have a legal presence and enforce these to show that you are protecting the property or you will lose your rights right? That whole thing is that you have to do this in each and every place. Yeah, um, There are still a number of what they call, quote, first to file countries. A lot of Middle, Middle Eastern countries are still this way. This is 1998. So again, I don't know how much of this has changed or not. So let's keep that in mind. Um, there was this one guy, and I'm not kidding, this guy's name is Abu Shady. I guess, he would, <laughs> I guess he would look across the ocean to the United States and if there was a toy concept that was becoming popular and his being a first to file country, he would file trademarks to your creations in his territory. So when a year or so later, when we, when we go in, as it starts becoming popular there to license and this guy says, excuse me, you want to license my characters here? I own the copyrights and the trademarks on these. He knew exactly how much it would cost to fight it in court. And he had already figured out a legal settlement, like a number for the legal settlement, which was less than the cost of the legal battle. And then he says, you want the rights back to your characters in my territory, pay me X amount of dollars and you can license them in my territory. I heard he was doing this to the Simpsons, Warner Brothers and other companies. And I highlight this specifically in relation to Turkey. One, because it's a Middle Eastern country and it may or may not be. Keep in mind, I did not have time to do a deep dive. I discovered this information literally 24 hours ago when it was presented to me by by Dove. But there's something really interesting there In, in the conversation that I had with Dove about this was basically like, there's a real chance that like Star Wars wasn't licensed in Turkey. And in fact, under Turkish copyright law, some, the person who owns the rights to both Turkish Star Wars and the Uze figures in that country at that particular time was because of a first to file situation. Okay. Right? Which means that technically they're kind of not bootlegs in the prohibition kind of sense. If we think about like bootlegs being like the circumvention of copyright law, which is the, the legal framework for the prohibition that we're talking about, like I mentioned in like, I think episode two, when I was talking about Mickey Mouse. Yeah, so um, we
2: run down in episode one when we were talking about like kind of defining what certain things are. So yeah. they're not bootlegs
3: and they're not, not it, these are just copies then. Because they're technically, because te- they technically could be licensed toys, but whoever actually owns the license has no connection to like Lucas, Star Wars or anybody else in that particular era right okay yeah so they are it's this like it's operating within a legal gray area that i think copies or duplicates are are probably the best way to describe them yeah and that that i think is like you know um the turkish star wars movie is like clearly a bad copy of star wars in terms of its plot in the way that like the aesthetics of the movie and in a particular way, there's kind of a skewedness to the way that the Uze figures articulate themselves. Um, because they're copies of these figures that are only really referring to themselves, because those are the photos that you're seeing, which is usually the part on the like on a backer card that is communicating the character from whatever popular property you were interested in, right? Yeah. Like that was the so there's something interesting going on there where these are kind of like. But like 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 copies of to- Star Wars toys for the sake of copies of Star Wars toys that refer to their own sort of like duplicate nature simply be simply through the packaging of the images the images on the packages as well. Mm-hmm. I find that fascinating. Like yeah. when I when I saw that I was like oh, um, and the copy thing is really interesting. So this is really like beyond all of this. This is there's not much beyond all of this particular, like part with the turkish stuff that i that i really like have in terms of like a line of commentary again there are people who know this stuff better than i do um and you know i bow to their superior wisdom in these cases but just a quick shout out to the swca the star wars collector's archive which has like at least a pretty good database of like bootleg star wars toy figures from around the world yeah Um, which is where i discovered some of them like the like the Ombre Espacial from uh, from Argentina from Plásticos Pedro Luca, um, yeah. uh, and that's another thing that I'll get to when we talk about this. Is like, so the odds with these particular toys. I want to highlight too, with the um, if you look at the quality of the backers and the quality of the figures. Um, I'm gonna stop sharing my screen and reshare it so that you can see it. But if we look at if we look at the quality of the backers on these figures. They look like commercial products, right? These look like injection molded, pretty well-painted, like mass-produced, blister-packed. Like, they look very, very close to what we consider to be a commercial retail Star Wars toy from the 70s or 80s, which means that it's it's very likely that these were made in factories at scale. Um, What that scale looks like, I can't comment. But it's clear that these were still, these are kind of like somewhere between like this idea of a duplicate, somewhere between like a bootleg and a licensed toy, but it's still being made by, in some sort of industrial context, which is the case for most of the stuff I'm going to talk about, but certainly not all of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's also worth mentioning too, is like, that's part of the condition here. Um, So I, yeah, yeah, that's Turkey. We'll start there because people know it right? Yeah. Um, so where do you want to go next? Mexico. All right. So this will probably be the lengthiest part of the conversation. So Mexico is interesting because it is technically part of North America, but it's also sort of the entry point to Latin America, which is where you get, if you go further south to Argentina, there are specific sort of cultural and economic conditions of the bootlegs there versus Brazil, which are there are also you know, specifics there. I think Mexican bootlegs are probably the thing that um, most people, like I think if you say Mexican bootleg, most people in this community has a, has a pretty good idea of what you're talking about. It's interesting because there's no real sort of like one defining characteristic and there's multiple defining characteristics. So I'm gonna share with you an image that I took in October of 2015, my first trip to Mexico City. And what you're looking at here is a sign it says uh, no pirateria. And then on the, around the, this symbol with a skull with a patch on inside, that looks like a pirate. It says, do not pirateria? Which basically means don't call them pirated.
0: We interrupted this broadcast of Toys on Tap to bring you this. <laughs> Look at this place. Hello, and welcome to Fortress of Solitude Toys and Games. Yo, Hero Dude, what's going on? Well, I'm your guide for Premier Independent Toy Store here in Northeast Texas. What is that? What is it? Look at there, check it out what is that? Well, that stuff is new and vintage bootlegs, art toys, action figures, pins, statues, board games, classic video games, and all kinds of pop culture ephemera. Oh, hey, he's right. Look at shirt over there. What is this a Ooh, you found our always growing line of awesome swag that we work with our friends and indie artists to create. Wait,
1: what is this? Place? Where is this? Anyway. Well,
0: young squire, you're at the Fortress. To solitude toys and games located at 1102 North Washington in Mount Pleasant, Texas, or online at fortresstoys.com. Who was that guy? I don't know. He was like a hero or something. But wait if you act now using code YUCKO for 20% off anything in store on your first order, or if you subscribe to the mailing list, you can get a free shipping for the rest of the year.
3: So this is this is like a discursive shift in the sort, of, the sort of informal street culture of Mexico City. This was in a gamer plaza called Freaky Plaza, which is kind of like a street market, but it's like a four floor um, marketplace for bootleg video games uh, and like geek culture stuff, t-shirts. All of the kind of stuff, merch, watches, jewelry, toys, whatever. Not necessarily like toy, like the toys that we would be interested in in terms of like bootleg toys, but stuff related to like specifically a specific facet of gaming and geek culture, like anime and like video game stuff. Yeah. And so further sort of like commentary, like or discussion with my limited Spanish. Uh, and I remember asking someone like, you know, like like how much was this Pokemon bootleg? And she said, don't call it a bootleg. Uh, and she was like, este uno copia. So copias or copies, are how like sort of the street culture defines the the terminology there with bootlegs right Mm there you know and i think part of i i i don't know what that why that is exactly but I, i think it's because like honestly like mexico mexico has this interesting this sort of interesting uh sort of position in that ultimately you know it's part of sort of like like north american free trade agreements it's sort of like adjacent to the United States, which is, you know, the, the economic powerhouse that it is so much like Canada, most of the media that they probably are consuming, like popular media is being exported from the U S so, you know, all the properties that we've talked about before. Um,
2: It seems like a very West cultural thing to call something a bootleg because mm -hmm. it says like, Oh, that's just a knockoff of the goods that we've created. But when yeah. they say copy, it's like, no, no, this is the same. We're it, at the same level.
3: It, it 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 renders, yeah, it renders the value of the object horizontally in relation to the original. Yeah. Rather than placing the original object on a pedestal, which is what most people, and, and let's be honest, like a lot of collectors in terms of like licensed goods, that's what they're interested in, right? Yeah. It's the whole premise behind like the, like I said, the Star Wars prototypes and the like, from Hasbro and like the, the WWF sort of like He-Man mashups and stuff. It's like yeah. it's like licensed versions of those same things that somehow have more value because they are licensed and part of that part of that sort of legal like intellectual property apparatus. Um, so this renders them horizontally and that tracks really well because my the following trip that I made to Mexico City in June of 2016, I went to a toy convention. And what I found really interesting about that is that vendors who just had like tables of loose toys, like often these piles of toys were a mix of licensed and like unlicensed toys. They were all just thrown together. Um, and that actually relates and in, in that, you know, that connects to this idea of like, if you call it a copy, it's very horizontal. Just to sort of lay out some of the cultural stuff here, like we were talking about, like the retail marketplace, for example, so Mexico is predicated on, like I said, it, it, it connects cities sort of like what we consider to be first world economies, but operationally because of the populations, it kind of still has a lot of the hallmarks of the informal economies of the, the developing world, which means informal marketplaces that sort of pop up on the street, right? So here are some, I think this is Fuatsemaq, which is, a, a, this shows up once a week in a park and it's just people selling toys on blankets
1: mm.
3: in Mexico City. Um, you know, here's here's like another another version of these kinds of booths where you can see this mix of like both licensed and li- unlicensed goods. Uh, this one is from I think this is from La Lagunia, which was a uh, an antique market that shows up in the neighborhood La Lagunilla every Sunday in Mexico city. And it's like literally like 20 city blocks of antique vendors that just show up, set up and by dusk they're at sunrise to sundown. Um, so the Tiangus, which is like the open air sort of flea market marketplace is really big there. Um, and this is how this stuff circulates. Here's a really good one too. So like you can see here, if you look, you can see like vintage Klaatu's and Bib Fortuna's. And then like, as you cast out, you'll see like different licensed figures, but also bootleg figures. And a lot of these licensed figures are like, you know, just old discarded figures that a lot of these vendors have sort of found and refurbished and cleaned up. Mm-hmm. Like some a lot of people make their living simply by doing this. Um, in downtown Mexico City uh, and Metro Hidalgo near Hidalgo Square, which is where the uh, the Diego Rivera uh, mural museum is for anybody interested in going to Mexico. Um, if you go around back of, of the plaza Plaza Hidalgo, the entire back, uh, like sidewalk concourse, from sunup to sunrise every day is people selling toys like this on blankets. Um, it's really incredible. I I really need to write like a geek, like a toy geeks guide to Mexico City
2: because you could um, for sure walk up to one of those blankets and say, "I'll take everything," because it's gonna like it's probably realistically it's probably way cheaper to go there and get those things than it is to find any of that here
3: right i would i would say it depends because one of the interesting things about mexico right is we you know, like one of the things that generally we consider about the developing world is that they don't have technology mm-hmm. the everybody has a cell phone obviously in yeah. mexico like not obviously but obviously at this point and so like the vendors sometimes know what these things are worth and if you go there as like sort of a like a like a, like, let's be honest. As a your case, you're a gringo. In my case, I'm a guero. Yeah, right? absolutely. Um, I used to have to correct people like I'm not American. Yeah, um, the prices and,
2: change based on where you're from. For yeah, sure.
3: there are there are multiple prices, and that's part of the open air informal markets. So if they think yeah. they can get more money out of you because you have more money, like they're gonna try to get it, and then you negotiate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I learned this the hard way when going to a neighborhood. Not the hard way, I guess. I learned this the most when the first time that I went to Mexico City, I ended up in a neighborhood uh, called Topedo, which is kind of this notorious black market district just off of the historic district in downtown Mexico. Um, And it's it's pretty dangerous for tourists. Like, you know, it's the kind of place where you like, keep your phone like zipped up in your bag and all that stuff. And I kind of wandered in there because it's so close to the historic tourist district that if you literally turn left instead of right down one like road, you're in the middle of the black market and it just you can just travel deeper and deeper into that black market. Um, and the toy section of the black market is pretty far into Topedo. So when you go there, like at scale, this is what a like a black market looks like at scale for those who've never been to a place like this. Like one whole street will literally all be Nike merchandise, and then you'll turn down another street and it will literally be all Adidas merchandise, and then you will turn down another street and it will literally all be Disney merchandise. And then as you go and different, ob- like organized, like different objects and stuff, they're like little mini districts of different, and it's all, all of it is unlicensed copied goods that are either made in Mexico or shipped over from, for example, like China or Korea actually. Yeah. Um, and so I I couldn't find all of my photos of Topedo that I like surreptitiously took when I was there. But the last time I went to Topedo, I went, I. I have friends in Mexico City um, and this is a shout out to Patty and Anna, my friends, Patty and Anna, who are um these, these uh, toy collectors who like born and raised Mexico City, um, who I call Las Brujas del Juguete. I call them the toy witches. Yeah. Um, because they can look at a thing and tell you like what, like a bootleg toy, what, what mold it was copied from and like what part of the city or what, what region of Mexico it was likely made in. And so there's all these really interesting sort of like facets of knowledge that they have for being on the street but also i can tell you that traveling into Topedo with them to buy toys meant that the toys were a third of the price that I paid the first time i went mm. um so it's not a place you should go without a guide like that's you know uh you have to be you have to be pretty careful there and i'm not saying that to scare anyone i'm saying that because like there is a cultural assumption that if you are coming from like other places in the west that you were of means, because you must have been, because you were able to travel there in the first place, right? Yeah. It makes sense. There is an economic disparity that you are a signifier of when you are walking around. Um, and so, all this to say, all of this informal marketplace and this informal economy spawns a very specific kind of on-the-ground sort of like making and copying uh, framework for uh, for Mexican bootleg toy. Yeah, we're going to talk about this because there's a difference. Like, so for example, like in Mexico, there are like toy manufacturers. Yeah. There are toy manufacturers that manufacture bootleg toys, such as or used to, such as Huguetes Juarez, which was a pinata toy manufacturer that started manufacturing cheaper injection molded plastic figures in the 1980s based on Star Wars and G.I. Joe. And it was or not G.I. Joe, sorry, I don't know why I said G.I. Joe, Star Wars and Voltron. I actually have a vehicle, an original 1980s vehicle, Voltron. But so, so there's the industrial framework, right? So there's the licensed stuff. So the Mark's toys had a, a Mexico factory and Lily Letty was licensing the Kenner stuff and those were being made in Mexico City. So there are Mexican licensed Star Wars toys and then there are the bootleg toys. Mm. The bootleg toys are generally speaking made from molds that are copies of figures not from stuff that came out of Lily Letty because they would have had that stuff pretty like fucking locked down. But so most Mexican bootleg toys are based on these two fellas right here and this particular figure. This is like this isn't a definitive history, but if we're understanding where we are now you have to look at these. There is a whole tradition of handmade toys in Mexico that is the a tradition that you know is like every region has their own tradition of handmade toys. But in Mexico, so, uh, Lucha Libre culture features very predominantly in, you know, it starts in sort of the 1930s, but through the 1940s, 50s and 60s, Mexican Lucha Libre stars such as El Santo and the Blue Demon, um, El Mazul, Azul, are basically like Mexico, the most famous like Mexican action heroes. There are movies, they were stars of action films Um, And then they're emerging from that iconography um, of these characters is, are these, are these figural toys that they call luchador plasticos, uh, which is the very standard lucha libre figure that most people uh, who are probably listening understand what I'm saying. It is a very basic figure that is non-posable where the, the character's arms are sort of splayed out like at the lower the lower left hip and then up sort of by the shoulder and their hands are sprayed up it's kind of like the jazz hands wrestling action figure right and so one of the questions and we'll talk about the legacy of that in a minute But this is a really fun and interesting story um, that i learned through like some mexican youtubers uh and shout out to mad hunter who probably doesn't listen to this He's like one of Mexico's biggest like toy collecting YouTubers who's done a lot of great work on the history of Mexican toys as well. Um, and he they're in Spanish, but you know, the captioning on YouTube is like the translation algorithm isn't horrible. So you can kind of follow along with what he's doing. But what's interesting about these figures and why that pose is so significant, let's look at a photo. So here's a photo. Of Blue Demon and El that Santo. Yeah. And they are actually striking that same pose. And you might ask yourself, why are they striking that pose in that photo? That looks kind of weird and awkward. Allegedly, they were telling the photographer that they weren't ready to take the picture and they were telling him to wait. Mm. And this is how we get the iconic Lucha, Luchador Plasticos figure in the pose. Uh, this particular sort of thread. Hand injection molded, and I'll show you some photos actually from a workshop. Um, but these are hand, hand injection molded uh, plastic figurines that are just pumped out and mass produced, cheaply painted, thrown in bags and sold on the streets and in the, in the marketplaces. Um, I have a ton of them. And, and anyone who knows me and knows my work knows that I do a lot of custom luchas because whenever I go to Mexico, I like fill half a suitcase with these guys because I love them so much. And then so there's this thing that happens, right? If we're talking about that culture of copying and variation on a theme that is derived from the Luchador Plasticos. So here's a Darth Vader. Yep. Right? Here Lucy, is- Mexico? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's basically someone has taken a Luchador Plasticos figure, like cobbled a Darth Vader head on top of it and then remolded it. Yeah. And now there's a Darth Vader. Um, there are also, there's a Robin in the middle. There's a Phantom of the Opera and that same Darth Vader again. Here are some fun ones that are just custom painted uh, Mexican Thundercats from back in the day. And so what becomes clear when you start looking at the legacy of the Luchador Plasticos figures is that these are really low fidelity uh, toys being made kind of by people who um, may or may not have the necessary, the requisite, what we would consider to be like expertise in terms of painting, for example. Mm -hmm. And materially, the paints are much cheaper and they flake off easier as well. So there's a there's a durability. This all has to do with the material conditions of what is available access, right? What do you have access to to make this work? Well, this is what we have access to. And so this is where this kind of stuff comes out. And it's very likely that these Thundercats were just made by a street vendor who customized those Lucha Libres themselves. And in fact, I'm pretty sure that the one on the left that's supposed to be I don't know if that's Tiger, Panther, or whoever, uh, but I'm pretty sure that that's a, that's a Batman figure. Oh, okay. Um, like, that, again, Lucha Libre body, same pose, uh, different head attached. And I'm looking, because I have this amazing Mexican Chewbacca Star Wars bootleg that is in the Lucha Libre pose that looks like they took uh, whoever made this particular figure. It looks like they took a, Lucha, a Luchador Plasticos. And then sculpted a Chewbacca body over top of it and then made a mold of that. Um, cool. Yeah and so this kind of lo-fi injection molding is, a, is, a primary, is one primary material feature mm-hmm. uh, of Mexican bootleg toys and you can see this in a photo that I should there. So this photo that I'm showing you right now is in one of innumerable workshops in Mexico City Where independent people, like independent sort of business owners, however you want to frame it, these family owned, these legacy businesses, literally, they have basically what's like kind of a cobbled together handmade injection molding machine. They have these molds that were either made or that they paid to have copies made of they're buying the the sort of the plastic pallets and they are literally just pumping out these figures and making them themselves and selling them either to a distributor of some kind, which is probably related to some kind of cartel activity, let's be honest, or they're selling them on the streets on their own. And this particular frame I pulled from, um, I have a link in my notes that I will send you so you can see it and you can do what you want with it. But it is uh, Mad Hunter, the, the YouTuber from Mexico City, goes to this workshop and talks to this family um the father who founded the workshop has passed away but one of the members of that family talks about how it was his father who actually created the original luchador plasticos figure oh and and that mold whether or not that's true that could just be mythologizing because they're on camera or whatever right like like that there's no way to fact check this and that's what's really interesting this is a toy with no author at this point right? That's fascinating to me, that there is like, we can't point to the one person who designed it or the company that designed it, because it all existed in this informal street economy that's very messy, you know, that's kind of this like oral history that will change depending on who's telling the story. Mm -hmm. Um, And the legacy of that is still felt today, although the fidelity of the figures has changed. So here are some contemporary bootleg Star Wars toys. Uh, These ones actually are in my personal collection. And this is a This is uh, uh, from The Force Awakens. So there's a a Hux of Vader, some kind of couple of crime dudes who are the dudes in the movie who like harass Han Solo. And like my favorite Chewbacca of all time. He's just this weird, like he looks hand sculpted.
2: Yeah, his arms are bent, where his legs look bow-legged.
3: And his bandolier is clearly hand sculpted and his face is very, very like just kind of a... I've actually one of the things when people buy toys for me is that they get a blank bootleg of this bootleg mm. in white resin that I pre-treated for painting, so they can make their own. Because I, I just I love it so much. Yeah. and he's so, so that much idea of copying the other. Yeah. Games. So this low fidelity sort of like copying, uh, you know, you can sort of think about this in terms of like generation loss, like when you used to record from like one VHS tape to another, and then take that vhs tape and record it onto another vhs tape like this is how i see these toys is kind of this the they're they're like kind of copies of copies of copies Mm. and then the the sort of the resolution of them starts breaking down and they start looking less and less like their original characters Mm. and that might be in some cases because they probably you know the person for example who sculpted that chewbacca is probably someone who is doing this as a living, that's part of like a family sort of own business and family legacy because family, the family unit in, in particularly that I learned this from my friends in Mexico is like very, very strong. And most often like you are sort of born into the work that your parents did and that continues on. Mm. Um, and so there's this legacy, this sort of intergenerational legacy around these things. So you can see that kind of, you can see that kind of legacy there. And then the blow molding stuff is very similar in that it's just a different technique, but it's also being done by sort of non-experts or people who have developed these skills using these molds, using blow molding, which is a slightly different kind of process than injection molding, to create these giant jumbo hollows, sort of like he-mans and spider-mans, and you name it. And what's yeah. interesting to me, sorry, I'm well, the just this talking the blow mold here. of the he-Man thing is so weird it looks
2: like I mean Janky and I talked about it on the Patreon episode and then um, we talked about it it might be on his normal episode but it, it looks like it's um, he's like holding a lightsaber hilt in it but it's not yeah. like no one we can't identify what's in his hand because it looks like it was blow molded that way or whatever and it's just something
3: that's probably where the hole for the blow molding Okay. That makes sense. If you can't find that hole elsewhere on the figure, that's what that is. Okay. Because you need a path in to blow, like at least for that hand, like maybe they put it there instead of putting it in the shoulder or whatever, because it's a Mm. separate piece. That's very, very possible. It's like a vent of some kind in order to, yeah, because blow molding is really interesting. I'm not going to get into like too much in depth about what that is, but like what I want people to take away from when I talk about this sort of like culturally in Mexico is that there's different threads and there's different materials. There's the injection molded figures, there's the blow molded figures. And then there's this other thing that is really interesting with Mexico, like where, you know, like, and we can talk about r- low resolution copies. I've talked about my Superman, my favorite Superman before, which I'm holding up for you to see, which isn't an, clearly an like hand sculpted, low fidelity, like injection molded Superman figure yeah. that a mold was made from. And The story around this figure, like I found this at that toy convention and I remember showing it to a friend of mine and he's like, that's not Superman because he was ascribing to this sort of licensed authenticity thing. And I was like, dude, this thing has been so played with that there is some kid who this this was his Superman, Mm -hmm. like period, the end. And then a friend of mine in Mexico, my friend Arturo, when I showed him this when I got it, he said, yeah, that's my Superman. These were really popular around the time that Christopher Reeve was Superman. Like yeah original super richard donner superman movies so remember there's a cultural perspective here that views these things as just as authentic as anything that we can think of and that's part of the politics of the language of the copious versus the puriterius or the poop.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: and so finally i just want to highlight something here i'm sorry i'm going on about mexico but i like you know i love this stuff so much is the, these kind of weird mashups that come out. So there's this is the Planet of the Apes Cylon, which was like a really famous vintage bootleg, mm-hmm. which is a Planet of the Apes head, like Mego style head on a Cylon Raider body from Mattel. So it branches out into these kind of more original looking figures, such as these like Planet of the Apes astronauts mm-hmm. that have this like removable like astronaut apparatus and then have monkey heads as well. I have like yeah. five of these in different colors um they're my favorite these are like these are like one of my all time favorite like mexican bootleg toys but again like very like you can feel it like this is not high quality plastic because it's what's accessible and what's affordable to the people who are making them the paint generally is flaking off because again there these plastics aren't being treated to take the kinds of acrylic paint right so there's there's not there's like a certain amount of sort of material sort of prowess but not a great deal of material expertise and i think yeah. that that's what fascinates me about it, because this is, this is like a toy culture made by non-experts who are sort of just like m- absorbing these media properties and then creating their own interpretations of it. And that brings me to a photo of this guy. Thor and so, Mario. yeah, it's a Super Mario and Thor matched up. This is technically some kind of original, like a Mario figure that has original sculpting that was then molded. And if you look up Mexican Homer Simpson toys, you can see that Homer has been mashed up with everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and what's interesting to me about Mexican street culture and the, the, that sort of street toy culture is how quickly they respond to culture in the same way that artists do in, say, the West, like the bootleg artists. Yeah. like The Squid Game, I've seen like oodles of Squid Game figures. Um, and also like these newer figures that are original sculpts that are mashups of aliens. Uh, versus predator, but they're dinosaurs. So all this to say, what's really interesting about Mexican bootleg culture is on one hand, it's all like toy culture, right? Cause there's all the other stuff too, is that it's kind of predicated on the legacy of the lucha luchador plasticos, but it's branched out into this, like this massive mashup culture that looks a lot like the artist bootleg culture in North America, mm-hmm. but just at scale, man. Like it's crazy, the scale of this you name an ip i can find a mexican a mexican bootleg toy for you of it okay. and in fact i will also give a shout out to anyone who is interested on purchasing this stuff but doesn't doesn't necessarily like live or go to me- live in or go to mexico karma de perro that's k a r m a d e p e r r o karma of the dog translated um, is uh, he lives in puebla uh, and he sells Uh, Mexican toys like contemporary Mexican bootleg toys through his Instagram so what is happening sort of on the street in any particular moment right now um, like most of that information for me is coming through him and asking him questions uh, and I regularly regularly purchase work through him so all that stuff I just showed you came from him Yeah. he picks it up he puts it on his Instagram you send him DM him PayPal him and it will get to you in like four to six weeks because the Mexican postal service is terrible. Mm. Um, but so is the Canadian postal service, which is probably why it takes a long get The US isn't that so, really great either, so don't worry. Yeah, and then finally, one last thing about Mexico beyond that is that I would just like to highlight, and I've mentioned this before, and here's the front of it, is the Museo del Reguete Antiguo, which is the Antique Toy Museum of Mexico City, which is owned by Roberto Shimizu, Uh, and the creative director of the museum is his son, Roberto Shimizu Jr. And this is a four floor museum of both traditional Mexican toys, bootleg toys and commercial toys. Uh, You can see in the photo how big the building is and how big the complex is. It's also a street art gallery where international street artists come to do work on the walls. The rooftop is a street art gallery. Uh, And I had the privilege of working here for seven weeks in the summer of 2017 on an art project. And like, I will never forget that time getting to I spent every day in that place. Mm-hmm. And every day when I was going into the studio that we had inside there to build an arcade with uh, six Mexican street artists, every day I would see something that I just didn't see before, even though I was generally walking the same path. Like it's yeah. unbelievable, unbelievable. Like every toy collector needs to make a trip down here, down there. Um, I think it's one of the largest toy collections in the world, private collections in the world. And so I could say more But there are so many other countries, and we've already like, we're already like two hours into our chat, man. And I'm just like, poor Abe has to edit this. This is why I was like, maybe we do half of it, and the other half goes up as a Patreon exclusive.
1: Yeah, we could. We could break it. Let's throw up a fucking
3: paywall and make everybody pay to hear the rest of this. There you go. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So yeah, I could keep going, but I think for that, you know, like I have a real sort of like passion for this stuff particularly because I'm very, I feel very connected to it because of my friends and the times, the time that I've spent there. And I am working on something that kind of looks like a bit of a, bit of a primer on like, you know, toy culture in Mexico city and where to go and how to find it. What it looks like. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. But that means I have to recover some data, some data from an old hard drive where all my photos are. Most of the photos that I showed you were photos that I found off the internet because I don't have my access to my own. I only have to right now. Okay. Yeah.
2: All right. What country are you headed to? Japan. Oh, uh, let's go to Japan. Japan's I'm a fun in Japan one. Japan because Japan is uh, up in the developed world, uh, like alongside the U.S. So their knockoff or bootleg figures or unlicensed merchandise, generally, like that has that's not because they can't afford it. That's not because of that stuff. Like they're just capitalizing on something.
3: Yeah. And to be fair, like, you know, I don't know. I mean, everything I know about Japanese culture is sort of through this very, very Western filter and very sort of from a distance because I've never been there. I've never experienced it. Um, Again, those who are interested in specifically Japanese toys, Japanese toy culture, You can go to YouTube or Instagram and look at Tokyo Toy Bastard. He's kind of a, he lives in Japan. He's from the West, but he lives there and he does like toy hunting videos. And he can talk about, he talks about the culture. Uh, He collects Safubi, which is the Japanese um, sort of nomenclature for soft vinyl toys. Um, I think like increasingly people are calling Japanese like soft vinyl toys that are made outside of Japan as Safubi. But Sofobi also relates to the artisans who sort of make the soft vinyl toys and that kind of the, the craft and the practice there. So that's some, just some preliminary stuff. But when we think of bootlegs in Japan, there's terminology for this that comes from Japan and that is Pachimon. Which Pachimon is basically, it sort of, it, it originates with um, these Hanafuara playing cards that I'm showing you right now that were collectible that were originally released by a compa- the company that owns the Kewpie mail, you know, the Cupid doll mayonnaise, if you've ever yeah. seen that, the Japanese mail. And these were collectible cards that were in that. And what Pachimon is, is they're sort of knockoff kaiju. So they're kaiju that look like more famous licensed kaiju, but they're a little bit different. And there's sort of these unique kind of knockoff characters that came about because of these cards. And I have a couple of like, that one is so good. Yeah.
1: with the statue of liberty yeah does that look
3: Um, it looks like Alf. a little bit but it's like a lizard version of elf with a bird beak yeah yeah kind of a little bit it's like what if Godzilla? because it basically looks like if you sliced off godzilla's nose replaced it with a beak gave him yoga yoda's ears yeah it's like very very strange right so these kind of hybrids this one's fun this is kind of based on an Ultraman uh, kaiju, except instead of the clam head, it's actually a UFO. There's a wolfman punching a building. Um, but then, so Pachimon also starts translating to Pachimon sophobie and Pachimon okay. soft vinyl. And so we're still in kaiju land with the, term, the terminology, right, um, which is where it sat for a long time. Except now, Pachimon actually applies to any knockoff toy that's produced in Japan. The thing about Japan is because Japan, as we we know, is like a very sort of prohibitive culture. There are like sort of lots of rules and traditions and cultural Mm -hmm. mores. So, bootlegs don't circulate in the same way there that they do elsewhere. They're not as prolific. Uh, Here's an example of some bootleg Chewbacca Keshis. Um, They look good. Yeah, they're not bad. Those. There's some, yeah, well, those two on eBay right now are 186 for the pair. Weird. So, like the rarity of Star Wars Pachimon in Japan, there's a Star Wars Pachimon book too mm-hmm. um, that will cost you 100 bucks and it's basically like a 16 page color photo zine. Um, but so, what's interesting now is that as Pachimon sort of gets adopted as a term to talk about other knockoffs and bootlegs, and of course, there were cheap sort of dime store versions of like the Microman line, which became Micronauts through Mego, Godzilla, etc. These sort of cheap dime store versions of these things. All of that is Pachimon as well. But uh, the Star Wars Pachimon. So here's some Star Wars Pachimon that are just like kind of gorgeous.
2: Yeah, those are figures that. I mean, I'm not a huge collector of a lot, but I, those would be on my shelf immediately. Those are, and so if you awesome.
3: look at their feet, they're actually pull, figures that are pull toys. Wow, right? They're on little wheeled platforms as well. Uh, and then here's some soft vinyl, some Pachimon soft vinyl. But what's really interesting, and this is like here's your your toy geeks tourist guide to Japan. Uh, you need to Google search Pachimon Star Wars, and you will find a Star Wars Pachimon cafe in, I can't remember where in Japan it is. It's where some of these photos are from. Um, And these are, it's a cafe that is exclusively, its entire decor is basically a bootleg Star Wars toy museum that's also a a Japanese cafe. So you can get some like curry chicken katsu and rice and, you know, and some tea um, or some sake. And you can just like hang out with all these bootleg Star Wars toys. Um, and you can see here like, like in terms of how, how these like, regional bootlegs start circulating among collectors is there are some either Spanish or Mexican uh, bootleg Star Wars clocks here. And you know that's because it says La Guerra de la Galaxias, which is Star Wars mm. on, in Espanol. Um, so yeah, this is really all I, I know about Japanese bootlegs. Um, like I said, there are, will always be someone who knows more than me about this stuff. But I think that it's really interesting that it emerges from like the sort of pop culture of a particular era through kaiju and then gets adopted writ large into these other this other terminology. Um, But also unlicensed Japanese Star Wars toys or or like toys in general are just not as common as in other places. Yeah. um, As in other regions. And a lot of that has to do with you said it's like the West and in some ways it is, but in other ways it's also more stringent. Right. Mm-hmm. If you look at other facets of their culture, for example, like the lack of progressive politics in and around gender identity in Japan um, and how Nintendo treats that as an international multinational corporation, for example, just one example, like there are cultural traditions that leave Japan being a little bit repressed and prohibitive compared to other places that we've lived Okay. At. The informal economies of something like Mexico are way more broad, way more wide open, and way more permissive, right? Mm.
1: Um,
3: maybe not in all of sort of the, all of the political aspects, but certainly in terms of the in terms of like the marketplace and what is being made and how it's being distributed. Um, yeah, so that's Japan. All right, let's go to China. China is interesting because, for for a couple of reasons, and one of the things. Um, and I again, your figures so bad. <laughs> yeah, and and again, like all credit to Dove and the conversation that he and I had yesterday about this stuff. So he highlighted this to me and kind of reminded me that this was the case. So historically, China has always butted heads with other countries in and, and around copyright, and there's a reason for that. Not because they're like fuck you, we don't recognize your intellectual property, but because seen through Chinese eyes, like Chinese culture. Copying is like viewed as, as being sort of a sensible phenomenon and a symbol of respect for authority and a way of sort of passing a test. This is like, it comes from this idea of filial piety, piety, which is like the homage to your parents or your teacherly authorities, this yeah. master-student relationship that is derived from Confucianism. So it says that if there is something in the, in the world that is masterful that you respect as a student of that thing it is kind of your moral imperative to copy it mm-hmm. which is very different than like the way that we view sort of like concepts of copying and quote originality right in in the west so one of the things that happens in china as we know is that you know post post war america moving in like from the 60s in through the 70s And the oil crisis uh, and the economic sort of uh, anxieties around the oil crisis, many North American companies that used to produce stuff in-house in North America or in Japan in order to save money because of the increasing cost of materials, start moving their manufacturing offshore, south to Mexico, Mark's Toys, Lily Letty, that kind of thing, or east to China and Taiwan. So if you look at any vintage Star Wars figure from the original line, it will either say Hong Kong or Taiwan, depending on where it was made, for example. Mm -hmm. And so it's the manufacturing center, but it's also the recipient of all of the materials necessary to reproduce these characters from all of these intellectual properties. And often what happens, and this is also the case with like tech manufacturing in China, is that the very factories that are producing the licensed versions of those goods after hours are producing the unlicensed version of those goods that get circulated in the global great marketplace. So you might see that a cheap, hollow, Black Panther figure that you picked up in Chinatown for $1.99. We
0: interrupt this broadcast of Toys on Tap to bring you this.
1: Earth to <laughs> Aliens have
0: landed. Earthling. I want lowbrow art and bootleg toys. Toys, 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 Well you come to the right place. Earth to Kentucky is a shop for folks who love vintage sci-fi lowbrow and art bootleg toys. Toys, toys, toys. They're located over there at 836 Main Street, Covington, Kentucky. <laughs> toys, toys, they carry original art, vintage action figures, designer bootleg toys and toys and toys and t-shirts, designed exclusively for their store by some of their favorite artists. Thank you, Earthling. I enjoy Earth to Kentucky. I have all my favorite bootleg art toys, toys. Hey, look at that over there. It's a spaceship. Yeah. I need to go now. Someone's filming me in my spaceship. Shop now, www.earthtokentucky.com. That's earth2kentucky.com. Or just land your spaceship when they're open.
3: Bears incredible similarity to a $30 Black Panther action figure. It's because probably they're using the same molds with different plastics, or they've copied those molds and they're using cheaper plastics. Mm. So because of that, because there's like the difficulty of policing this stuff because specifically of the way that China is its own sort of island, that has historically now signed on to some of these international copyright treaties to be like, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. We'll circulate your films in China officially, right? Like they let Disney in, you know, for example and we talked about that. Like, but also it's like, we can also like ignore that in our own borders, because the only place to prosecute these violations is here. And if it's state-sponsored manufacturing to create cheap goods for our own population and exporting the quality stuff elsewhere, then we can also start exporting the the cheaper stuff to like developing markets. And that's generally how that stuff goes. Um, So they're taking advantage of their own sort of view of copying, you know, and like, there are so many troubles with like, the the sort of the regime in China as it stands now that we could get into politically. But in terms of that, that's kind of what's happening there. And so, like, you will see, yeah, the underworld warriors are another example of that. But the space power warrior, right, is like just sort of drawing from the iconography from like Western, like pop culture, like in this case, Darth Vader. But if you look closely on the top left, like why does the 1990s like lost in space robot Get why is he there? Well, it's science fiction, right? There's these really great suckler did a bunch of pieces years ago that were using um images from these really great bootleg Chinese Star Wars comics that were hand drawn that sort of Mm -hmm. retell the story but a little bit differently, um, sort of vis a vis like Chinese mythology. That I didn't, I should pull up some images for you, but they're also really amazing. So, historically, there is this kind of like culture of copying there that looks very differently. And then again, because of the materials that they have access to, they can sort of cheaply knock out all of this stuff and circulate it while they're still sort of working with those like the companies that are holding these licenses and making those other goods as well at higher. Right. So there's like there's a lot of kind of on the ground, informal, economic sort of corruption kind of stuff happening here. Um, You know, where like maybe a figure slips out and someone makes a mold of it or the molds disappear and someone makes a copy of whatever um but i always find it interesting that like the place that's the manufacturing center is also responsible probably like in terms of its volume for the greatest number of bootlegs related to these properties as well
2: yeah Yeah. and what's what's interesting about um because i'm looking at the space power warrior that you had up if that's not a good description of how a country would do it like they they base the character, you can tell that it looks like Vader, but they change, they do that thing and they change it enough. So the face, the mask is different. Uh, there's different, like his proportions are different. They make him a bigger character, all that stuff. But then like you pointed out how there's uh, what was it, lost in space. Now it's a picture of a lost in space robot. But then you also see like the Death Star in the background. So it's like, you're they're throwing so many things together so it's just like oh this is just a space toy and it just goes so unnoticed
3: and pre so other cultural conditions that that can lead to this one is like sort of a lot of what we talked about is a lot of the work that i'm showing you is pre-internet culture yeah which means that people don't have access to these sort of western intellectual properties all they see are these objects as they're being made there and then they filter their own interpretations of it based on other stuff that has also come through those factories mm-hmm. so like if you're if you're a chinese like if you're working in a chinese factory and you're making a darth vader and you're making a lost in space robot like how different are those to you if you don't understand the context of those properties right yeah like, they're not And so also not just pre-internet, but like China also locks down its internet pretty fucking hard. And so only the stuff that the Chinese government wants you to see gets through. So again, there's this kind of like, there's this rift or this barrier between cultures that we cannot assume is breached by the power of these intellectual properties and these multinationals in the West, right? These these objects and these characters and these IPs are not understood in the same way, right? I think they are heavily all we we know this even from the marvel movies they're heavily altered when they when they go over there yeah in terms of like the the dubbing and editing of these films like the chinese market version of spider-man will look very different than whatever spider-man we see come when it comes out in a few weeks like yeah it'll be different
2: i think the internet being locked down is a huge point that like some of these countries that we talk about like because so are we finished up with china right now
3: yeah, let's, we could talk about, I think this is an interesting issue to talk about is like yeah. we're talking about those issues of access again and who has access and who doesn't. And yeah. in, a, in a culture that has limited access to the iconography of the very things they're bootlegging, it makes sense that that's what they end up looking like.
2: Because you, you've talked about how there's a, that Korean market, right, of bootlegs and stuff. Well, that realistically, like North Korea could also be doing that stuff, but the, like their people, <laughs> if they were bootlegging anything, or they would have no idea what's happening on the outside of their culture.
3: Well, and maybe, maybe because North Korea is an interesting sort of like, North Korea is interesting as a totalitarian regime that sort of locks out the West almost in general in terms of its prohibition and its kind of social and cultural control over its population. We don't know what they see and what they consume and how they respond at all. Like it's you know it's kind of this weird black hole culturally. I have no idea how to deal with that. Most of the Korean boot like the Korean bootlegs that we, that I have seen, uh, shout out to Retro World Korea's Instagram, who's also another vendor who sells like bootleg Korean stuff. Um, you know is coming from South Korea. Mm. So again, like you know another another sort of like democratic country for sure, but also clearly not policing copyright when it comes to Western intellectual property because they're still kind of like making their own work. But this like totalitarian and this act, like the idea of prohibition under sort of a regime like that, um, maybe the next place we go is over to, um, let's do Russia and Poland, and then we'll circle back and finish with Brazil. And I'll just kind of put a cork in Argentina and say, Argentinian bootlegs look a lot like bootlegs we see in other places. They um and they're manu. Generally speaking, they're manufactured knockoffs in the same way that I've shown some other stuff. Yeah. Um. If we have time, we'll get to it. But I think that like moving into the Eastern Bloc, I think would be really interesting here. I think Um, that Poland, um, Polish
2: bootlegs are the ones I see referenced almost as much as the Mexican bootlegs of Star Wars or more through like internet like when people are chatting and stuff. So I'm excited to talk about that. Plus there's that Let's Polish
3: Do Poem, right? Yeah, that, With that, yeah. Book. <laughs> that, that Polish man. Yeah, yeah. She- um, <laughs> uh, 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 Jacob or Jakub, I don't know how to pronounce his name properly, uh-huh. um, made a brilliant book called Far, Far Away, which is a guide to Polish bootleg Star Wars figures. Beautiful hardbound book. Um, did a Kickstarter for a second, updated second edition uh assuming it made it it made it I think it was in the summer um I have the first edition I actually contacted him well after the first kickstarter and was like please tell me that you still have copies of this I just found out about it and we had a little bit of a chat about it and um he, yeah I bought a copy it's really really good it's like if you are a fan of these things like getting your hands on a copy of that book I think it's like for me, it's one of those like you know there are all these collectible guidebooks or whatever, but it's definitive when it comes to this because he talks about the cultural conditions of it as well, yeah, not just the figures. And so you can see here like there's a whole bunch of different like here here's the the ADAT drivers. So you know other than other than um, Polish toy makers culturally appropriating George Lucas and the West in the US, which is yeah. ridiculous, right? There's a, there's a whole other thing about power dynamics of different cultures I didn't even get into there, which is part of that discussion. But anyway, we'll, we'll shelve that. And if people have comments, you can at me and we'll have a talk. Um, so the Polish bootlegs are interesting because this is also like, we're starting to enter this idea of like, there's a particular part of the world that we used to call the Eastern Bloc that was under the sort of like the communist regime of the Soviet Union and Poland was one of those places that was taken over in the 19, late 70s, early 80s, if I remember my history correctly. And so for a time period, there is nothing in terms of what we're seeing, looking at here because of the prohibition. And this applies to a lot of Eastern Bloc countries. Before we get to sort of talking about the Polish bootleg Star Wars toys, I wanna to talk about the idea of prohibition and access. Because, as I've said before, control inevitably brings a response that is best described as resistance. Mm -hmm. And there's this brilliant documentary that was made on PBS called Chuck Norris versus Communism, which is about the illegal, the black market circulation of Western action films in communist Romania in the 1980s, and how that contributes to the fall of the Iron Curtain because people were absorbing these Western ideologies through these media properties. And there's several ways. I've read several different articles about this as well. Um, for example, in the Ukraine, if you wanted to watch an American film like Star Wars, you could like walk up to a van that had curtains, pay someone like five bucks or whatever the equivalent would be, and you could sit in that van that would have a VHS tape, a, a VCR, and a, a TV, and watch the movie inside this van, and then leave. And then there were also these illegal sort of like movie, like screening parlors that were in people's apartments. Mm. So there was this illegal network of people circulating tapes that also were spearheaded by someone who was paying for this one woman specifically in Romania to translate and do all of the translation in real time and they would dub them. Mm. And so she's sort of the voice of Western cinema in Romania during this time period. And so... I wanna highlight that because I wanna say that th- this is about people sort of changing the terms of access so they can illegally access the cultural output of the West at a time when it was prohib- prohibited in the, in, the, in the Eastern Bloc. And so it's not clear to me with something like Polish bootlegs, Jakub sort of highlights this a little bit. And there's something about one of the reasons, there's several things here. One is that they were produced Sort of after the fall of communism in those years immediately afterwards. But this was also a time of really significant economic upheaval in a nation like Poland, who is just sort of like returning to democracy after like, like you know, like a decade, a decade and a half. Mm-hmm. And so manufacturers also um, were under like material rations. So if you were a plastic manufacturer, you only got so many types of plastics and so many colors etc etc and so the bootleg figures the molds that they made were from uh, other figures but then the reason that you get the colorways is because of the rationing of plastics so they're made from whatever plastics were available to make them at the end of the day surreptitiously to sell in like pharmacies and other places sort of under the counter um fascinating to me yeah whether or not some of that stuff was happening before the fall of the Iron Curtain, I'm not sure. That would be something that, you know, I honestly think you should have him on the show. Because this man fucking knows everything there is to know about this stuff. And I am not the person to do this justice mm-hmm. at all. Um, but for whatever reason, too, it's also, it's not just Star Wars. So here's some He-Mans. Man, those are funky looking. Those are, those are funky He-Mans um clearly something that looks it actually looks like a mexican bootleg that was then posed and reshaped into a single rubber figure so there's two things there's there's injection molded plastic figures that come out of of poland and there's injection molded non-posable rubber figure uh several years ago i was living in toronto in an on the edge in etobicoke which is a suburb of toronto right on the border of another city called mississauga which is like a suburb suburb of toronto Mm -hmm. and Um, I know this only because of a friend of mine from university told me that when Poland sort of fell to the communists in that particular era, when he was basically a toddler and his parents and his whole family fled to Canada, there was this huge population from Poland that ended up of the Polish diaspora that ended up settling in Mississauga. Mm. And so the value village that I went to there at a particular moment in in that, during that summer, like the eight months that I was living in Toronto doing some contract work. um, Every time I went, I found a Polish bootleg of something. I have a He-Man, I have a couple of He-Mans and a Skeletor and uh, I have a Donatello, a rubber Donatello that looks like he's supposed to be riding a motorcycle but there was no motorcycle, Uh, it's just the figure. And then when when I found the rubber Darth Vader, I was like, holy shit yeah I have a Polish bootleg of Darth Vader which you know and it, like what's really interesting is that these things were again these were mass produced to give people in Poland at, at that time who probably couldn't afford any western any Western goods because they are just coming out of communism and they are like the nation is cash poor the people are cash poor like if you look at the transition the fall of communism and the west winning and capitalism winning the the catastrophic damage economically that that did to all of those sort of eastern Bloc nations mm-hmm. like any nation that traditionally would be, would say behind the iron curtain is like honestly i think a little inconceivable to us mm-hmm. um and so these were ways for polish kids to have access to western media properties that they were finally getting to see because they hadn't seen them before this was a way for them to access those goods in a way that was affordable because they were being made in that country. So again, this is all about terms of access and licensed goods come with extra costs because of all of the, the exchange of money that goes into licensing in the first place. And so unlicensed goods grant greater access to IP. Um, and that is a thesis that I will, like, I, will like, I will always take that position. That greater access is always good, even if it's you know, I, I don't really believe in like copyright in the traditional sense anyway. I think we've pretty much established that at this yeah. point. Um, but so that's a really important thing to consider as well. Is that one? So and but all this to say, what's really interesting about sort of bootleg culture in international bootleg toys and bootleg culture now is that the things that were made cheaply so that these children in these regions could have access. To the sort of objects and artifacts of the IPs that they were finally able to consume that was resonating with them are now some of because of how hard they are to locate and verify the, the numbers that were produced because they were kind of like. Produced informally and surreptitiously in these under these economic conditions. They are astronomically more expensive than licensed work in almost every case mm. specifically like. Star Wars, Polish Star Wars bootlegs are fucking expensive if you're a collector and you want to get it, right? Someone like, someone like uh, uh, Jacob or Jakub. uh, sorry, Jacob, if, anyway, whichever like pronunciation you prefer, like, you know, all respects, um, understands it because he had access to it at the time. And I believe he still lives in Poland. So I'm sure if you go to Poland, like finding a Polish bootleg in Poland would be like finding a Mexican bootleg in Mexico City. Like you'll see them because that's where you are. So, um, and that's one of the things that's really interesting about sort of the secondary market when it relates to these things is that you step into the West and suddenly, like, I literally could go buy one of those blow mold He Mans for like three or four dollars in the streets of Mexico City. And I saw a listing for one of those today for like a hundred bucks fucking US on. Yeah, I think I paid
2: 25 to get it.
3: Yeah, that's pretty reasonable. Yeah. And also Edwin Salas, who's also sort of part of the Mexican diaspora in the US, another mm-hmm. artist in the community. Edwin also sells that stuff as well, the blow molded mm-hmm. He-Man. So if you want to get a hold of one, if you're listening, like get in touch with Edwin, because uh, I know that he has a bunch of them yeah. as well. Um so yeah, so that's that's what I would say with Poland. So the colorways that make this line famous are specifically because of the limitations of manufacturing and the material access. Yeah. I find that fascinating. And what's fascinating about Far, Far Away is how much work uh, he has done to outline all of the colorways. It's unbelievable. So he has it's,
2: seen them then?
3: Oh, they're photographed. Yeah. It's like there are pages and pages, for example, of just the Adat at driver, of all the different known known colorways. And then if you follow his Instagram, which is Star Warsaw, I think. Yeah, um, yeah it is. Yeah. Um, he'll he'll sometimes he'll post stuff, too, and be like, hey, I just found a colorway I didn't even know about. It. Oh, and then he'll so that's where the updated versions come from. I think so. Yeah. Okay. So like, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those like, it's a history where the archaeology is still ongoing. So like, mm. you know, history is never fully written, right? Because we always make new discoveries. And so when it comes to Polish bootlegs, they, he's the individual, he's the expert. Um, because one, he lived it, and two, he's like massively invested in it, um, in it like a very sort of like pointed and deliberate and specific way. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely like any project that he does related to this, if you're interested in this stuff, is worth supporting. Mm-hmm. Like, so. Right. yeah, so that's Poland. Um, gotta
2: get to Russia and then we're going to circle back. Yeah,
3: let's, do, let's do Russia. Russia is also interesting for similar reasons that we were talking about with this Eastern Bloc stuff. So where do I want to start with Russia? Oh, let's just do this. So Russia is also pretty interesting because for the same reasons that I talked about with Poland, right? Like, except obviously sort of the seat of power of the Soviet Union, the centralized seat of power, even though communism was supposed to be decentralized, it didn't work that way, which is one of the reasons why it went kablooey. Um, So most of the Russian bootlegs also emerge post-Cold War, post-fall of the Soviet Union, post-fall of the Iron Curtain in the Eastern Bloc. And one of those companies, probably the most famous of those companies is a manufacturer named Oratet. And so here is an Oratet, this is, this is um mostly 90s power of the force era stuff uh this is a hungarian bootleg from back in the day too as well um which also eastern black i'm not essentializing like eastern european culture and say you know but like just it ended up in the folder so this is a figure that clearly is based on the 90s power of the force yoda Mm -hmm. with like a color scheme on the packaging that's not that different and so this yeah. is when this is when russian bootlegs really kind of emerge in the early 90s and i have another quote from kevin eastman that i think is worth reading at this point point. and this is what he had to say about russia and that same sort of thing about like licensing and ip i think i was talking about how crazy the russian program was in comparison to the insanity that we had already dealt with vis-a-vis the middle east we had done a licensing deal there with this sub-licensing agent named peter tam he said Well, we've looked into it, and there's no real government system. And keeping in mind, right, like Ninja Turtles strike big in 88, 89. So this is ninety, ninety-one, immediately after the fall of the Iron Curtain. So we've looked into it, and there's no real government system. There's no way we can protect our copyright and trademark or enforce anyone to protect our, our rights as we normally do everywhere else. He said, don't worry about it, because he had this arrangement where, we, where he would manufacture all these goods cheaply in factories in Turkey, where we had licenses already. So we'd get percentages of royalties from the increase in factory production as Turkey, as well as this guy would import all this Turtles merchandise, comics and toys, and you name it, drive them in big 18 wheelers into these Russian markets, open the backs and sell them off the trucks. He said that if anybody infringes on his rights as our agent in the territory, I'm going to send some of my guys over there to kick the shit out of them. That's how I'll protect copyright slash trademark, period. And I said, and then, yeah. And he said, I found that to be almost as funny as the Abu Shady thing I was telling you about. And he follows with, we were like, is that really what it's like there? And he said, you know what? to describe and I guess we're talking 1992-93 when the turtles were really hot and he said to describe the climate in Russia after the wall had come down and all of these changes were going on he said it's sort of like a cross between the wild west and Chicago gangland in the 1920s and 30s it was a really it was a really a free-for-all that all these capitalized ideas were coming in and people were just going nuts yeah Um, I kind of love hearing that story. And it's what's interesting to me about that as well is how much that relates to the rise of power of the Russian oligarchs who really sort of take over. Mm -hmm. Um, But prior to that sort of centralizing of power under the oligarchs, you get these Oratet. So these are the Oratet figures based on the 90s figures, right? And then you get these, which were also made by Oratet, which are these little blind bags by a company called AR Toys. And if you look at them, they're like little Terminator, Darth Vader blind bag kind of cashy figures. Yeah. So it's got like a Terminator body with a Darth Vader head with various weapon implements in the different colorways. Like super interesting stuff. And then if you want to see how these things were manufactured, you can actually buy what I'm showing you right now, which is an injection molded rubber Chewbacca without his torso. <laughs> on the injection molded sprue and these show up on ebay all the time from people so you can actually buy it like like still on its sprue like you can see that even the the chewbacca's crossbow is two different pieces like really fascinating kind of stuff actually i think all the pieces are actually there yeah they are because it's his head and torso, because he doesn't have a poseable head. His his hips, his legs, his arms. So it's interesting because you get this kind of like real kind of material sort of sense of how these things were made, because you can extrapolate what the negative of that would be vis-a-vis like a plastic mold or like a yeah. metal mold for injection molding plastic. And so again, like Russian bootlegs. I'm sure there are examples of Russian bootlegs during the Cold War, but I think they 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 would also look a little bit differently, right? Um, And they would look obviously more like the vintage stuff, like, but just in general, like, during the height of the Cold War, the big thing that was being sold as bootlegs in Russia was fat American fashion. Let alone like, like one of the stories, there are so many stories about the fall of the Soviet Union. And one of them is like, American media presence and American fashion had a lot to do with it. And then there's this document, there's a series of documentaries, there's two about the Cold wars that I've seen. That also talked basically about the rivalry between coke and pepsi and the global like presence of those brands was also responsible for the introduction of capitalism and the fall of communism in the east um like really really like you know interesting stuff in terms of like like how that stuff was licensed but it, again it's another one of those situations sort of like i was saying with like something like contemporarily like north korea like we don't really know because the histories of these things like really haven't been written yet um And I would love to see someone like who has experience, like either working at Orotet or whatever, like doing that kind of work and investigating that. But the challenge of that is that like Russia is still kind of a totalitarian regime. It's just kind of changed into a different flavor of one. Yeah. Um, And honestly, you know, in the pantheon of this, toys are often, if we look at this and we look at the breadth of what I've shown you today, there is a real regard like in the industrial sector that these were things to squeeze out extra money from these companies, but they were also kind of viewed as these throwaway objects. Like they weren't viewed with the same sort of weight and merit of like, of, as cultural objects say, as that like action figure collectors who are collecting vintage Kenner in the West view them. Mm-hmm. So like some shit that a kid played with and then threw it out of and then probably forgot about it. Yeah. Right? Um, so yeah, so that's interesting. Uh, so maybe we should move on to the last one that we're actually going to get to today which is brazil i believe because mm-hmm. i think it's also an interesting story um argentina is also an interesting story but it links up with some of this other stuff but um so with brazil <laughs> you're gonna laugh at this i'm gonna be talking more about video games than i am about toys for a minute here
2: for brazil real quick did they have a prohibition from it, they do right from accepting outside stuff
3: Oh, you are aware of this. Yeah, I think I mentioned this before too when I was in in another episode when I was talking about Brazil uh, very briefly. So Brazil, I'm not sure what these laws look like in like now in like contemporary culture, but in the 1970s, 1980s as these sort of emerging consumer electronic markets were sort of burgeoning all over the world, Japan, Germany, Mm. and the United States being the three major ones is that the Brazilian government basically enacted protection laws that said the only electronics that can be used, bought, and sold within Brazil need to be developed and made here. Um, And and so basically, it was kind of this lockdown that said you have to develop this stuff and make it here, right? Um, We won't sell foreign goods, period. This is about like a protectionist economy post-oil crisis, right? Mm -hmm. And also like, you know, Brazil, like, like being a very large economy in the context of South America doing this to protect its own interests. Whenever there's an economic crisis, you see protectionism become a sort of methodology by which governments try to um, sort of protect their own interests at the expense of like that cultural, like, and global, like sort of interchange of capital. Mm -hmm. Um, The United States is going through it right now. Trump was very Vi american and so is there's some stuff going on with electric cars with the United States with Biden right now that is upsetting like uh, the Canadian government, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, So protectionism because we're coming out of the COVID economic crisis, right? So protectionism is something that governments often do after economic crises in order to sort of rebuild their economies and protect their own interests. Mm -hmm. It also drives up inflation in a really dangerous way. Um, you know, but there's, there's like, there's like some like political economic one-on-one bullshit for you. Um, anyway, all that being said, so the Brazil government and the Brazil economy is sort of like wrapped in this, like this kind of wall that says you can't make shit here. So what do people do in the case of the Robbie game, which is the computer system that you're looking at right now, Robbie is essentially a bootleg Atari 2600. Mm -hmm. Somebody from Brazil went to the United States they bought an Atari, they reverse engineered it and they would do that with games as well. And then they would make them in Brazil. And technically they were following the rules, mm. right? They snuck this stuff in and made it. And that, that was enough for the Brazilian government, like sort of taking that stuff from elsewhere. And instead of licensing it, just sort of like, um, like making it on their own and reverse engineering it. Um, this happens also in the global marketplace with pharmaceuticals, mm. right? Um, like some countries don't have the patents to certain drugs, but they end up making generic versions of them for the good of their people, rather than the good of the profit of these international pharmaceutical companies. So the same thing, right? A particular kind of control brings a particular kind of resistance. And so historically with, with Brazil, you get all of these, so here's a better exploded view, like look at those joysticks. That's an Atari joystick. Yeah. It's actually an Atari console. Like you can see it, except they've just done this thing with the vacuum forming around this, like the Robbie computer video game system. Here is uh, is a a Brazilian copy of Miner 2049, which is a port of a ZX Spectrum game to the Atari that also kind of looks a little like Berserk. Um, And I'm starting with video games. Uh, Here's the Phantom system, which is a Nintendo slash Sega. Weird yeah it's like a sega controller a sega light gun but a nintendo console
1: weird
3: they'll play famicom and nintendo games um and then here's some more atari games sorry for the the low resolution there um so for me with brazil it starts with video games and there was a colleague uh that i was on a panel on years ago when i was doing more game related research Mm -hmm. um Uh, here in Montreal at the History of Games Conference. He's a scholar who lives in Brazil. His name's Emmanuel Fiera. Fiera, I can can do Spanish, man, but when you get me into Portuguese, I get very confused because I want to say it like it's Spanish. Anyway, so he outlined the entire history of this policy and what it meant for consumer electronics and the game systems that were made there. But what's interesting is that it also impacted toys in this really weird way. So they're not licensing... They're licensing stuff and then making toys, but it's not for the brands that you would normally associate. So when I said at the beginning of this episode, when I said, here are, um, you know, and I said, we're going to be talking about bootlegs, and then we're going to talk about toys that kind of look and feel like bootlegs, but aren't necessarily bootlegs. I was specifically talking about Brazil and a company called Glasslight or Glassleet. Um, So here is a licensed MacGyver action figure for example, like a weird property to choose an articulated hmm. who looks like it might actually be a bootleg of an A-Team action figure. I can't quite tell. Um, so Glassleat is this famous company that produced these toys for particular properties, which is interesting because a lot of the properties that Glassleet was making toys for, Glassleet actually did produce, I should correct myself here. They did license Star Wars and make Star Wars toys. They licensed okay. it. From so they went that way. So they went that way. But there's all these other properties in Brazil that I find really interesting because the North American market did not get any toys for these, these lines. So, for example, Airwolf was one. Um, Blue Thunder, where's the Blue Thunder picture? So there's a Glassly Darth Vader. Oh, it looks just so, great. Just so It's still the Kenner molds, right? Yeah. But it's just different packaging. And the packaging um,
2: actually looks really
3: good. Yeah, and that's a that's a, a a power of the force logo that's been translated into Portuguese. Um, there is another uh, bootleg Atari console. There is another bootleg Nintendo console, but this one too. So here's another one. So so the properties that were licensed beyond sort of Star Wars and the sort of brands that we know. And understand. I'm pretty sure Glassleet might have done some GI Joe stuff as well. Mm. But like then there's all these like weird, obscure sort of 80s action TV show properties that they did work for. They did A Team stuff. Uh, this is Blue Thunder, which was both a movie starring um, Roy Schneider, the guy from Jaws, but also became a TV show. So you get the helicopter, the super police helicopter, Blue Thunder. You get this truck that just says Blue Thunder in um in portuguese and then these two action figures that are actually bootlegs of the gay toy laser force figures <laughs> um and if you know like the gay toys was like yeah. a knockoff line in laser force in the u.s which yeah. we we didn't even get to talk about but i love them especially the vehicles like oh man those blow molded vehicles back in the day anyway so and then like yeah and then so there's MacGyver, um, and that's all I put. But there's like a bunch of A-Team stuff that's really interesting. But most famously, the glass leaf figures that are most famous is that I don't know if you remember a little cartoon called Dinosaurs.
2: I No, I
3: do not remember that at all. Not, not totally obscure, but kind of post Ninja Turtles, like late 80s, early 90s, I think, era with these like these dinosaurs from another planet come to visit Earth relatively big sort of cartoon property probably had one season and disappeared just like so many others they look no no dino saucers merch in all of north america in the north american market the only real dino saucers figures are glass dino saucers figures or bootlegs of glasslete dino Saucer figures that emerge in argentina and that has everything to do with the effect of their proximity right Mm. so that show
2: is made in the u.s yeah but for some reason because of lack of a claim or something they don't produce any product but for some reason are willing to
3: sell it off as a license agreement yeah so it was 1987 so that's actually before like ninja turtles that's before my time yeah it was it was deke animation so there were plans originally by Galoob to release a toy line and prototype figures were produced. Um, but the line was scrapped after the show was canceled after its first season due to low viewership and poor reception, just like most other cartoon lines, right? Like the reason that we like the last star, like, for example, the, the story of something like the last starfighter, mm-hmm. like classic eighties movie was supposed to have a toy line. Also, I think by Galoob or LJN V the same thing, Um, And then what's interesting is Argentina and Brazil both have their own uh, toys based on V that were also sort of licensed, Mm. um, where these other companies sort of ax the line because of the lack of what they perceive to be a lack of interest. So all the development was done, but then they were never made, but then they emerge in the Brazilian marketplace as the only licensed figures. Mm. And so what's interesting is that there's clearly like There are bootleg aesthetics and like some of the sticker-slappy stuff that I was talking about last week as well, right? Like, look at that Blue Thunder. Like, that is just a generic toy truck that says Blue Thunder. And a lot of the A-Team toys are like that as well. There's, like, all these different, like, toy cars and shit. um, And it's, like, it's just sticker-slapped. It just says, like, A-Team or whatever the...
2: And we ate it up.
3: Yeah. Uh, And again, Brazilian toys because of generally in the west if you're a collector and you're collecting bootlegs um you know that you're going to be paying a pretty fucking penny for any of this stuff as well whereas if you went there and discovered it it probably wouldn't be that yeah you know, it wouldn't be that expensive um almost might be cheaper to like although i wouldn't go to brazil right now because their covid policies are like Ooh. yeah um you know bolsonaro being what he is i'm just i Pay attention to global politics a lot as you can probably tell by this conversation um but yeah so like brazil sort of articulates itself in this different way on the one hand you know like it's almost like bootlegging by like government policy Mm -hmm. which i find fascinating um in the same way that like you know sort of like that idea of like people producing generic versions of drugs that they don't have the patent for because it's for the good of the country, right? Like that's the argument with the developing of the technology around that stuff. And then how, how that policy articulates itself in the toy manufacturing sector is also very interesting to me Um, because clearly those aesthetics still apply. Like aesthetically, this feels like a bootleg.
2: Yeah.
3: Even though we know it's a licensed product, Mm -hmm. which is bizarre to me. Um, They also did Thundercats. They licensed Thundercats. And that's when I realized I was doing some research and I found a, I think it was on the Thundercats wiki entry about Glassleet, how they said, no, these were actually licensed. The, like this company was actually like paying for licenses. Does that company um, still exist? I'm not sure. Hmm. I'm not sure. It's it's hard to, I would have to look that up.
2: Because I wonder if, the, if they do exist, if they still do that policy, like if they still are just licensing certain figures and producing them.
3: For the most part, a lot of these toy companies just simply Uh, aren't around anymore. One of my favorite Argentinian bootlegs, though, maybe we can close here just to show. are the 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 fight warriors of tomorrow. Guerrero's Dominiana. What the (laughs) hell is that? (laughs) So this is an example of... um,
2: He-Man legs and abdomen, it looks like, almost.
3: Yeah, a little bit, yeah, with like some weird janky robot arms and some kind of, yeah, sort of like he-man sort of he-man bootlegs with like really interesting hand drawing which is like my favorite thing about argentinian manufactured bootlegs like look at a yard on this thing
2: yeah
3: i love that and it's a space laser pistol that also comes with a cap gun and again argentini like our motor ratones biker mice but yeah. motor rats <laughs> Jeez. um and then there's some power rangers, rangers. <laughs> um so yeah, so more sort of manufactured aesthetics say than the Mexican bootlegs, um, like blister packed in that kind of professional packaging. Mm-hmm. For example, Mexican bootlegs are generally bagged with a, with a topper card more than a backer card or they're shrink wrapped to a backer card but not blistered to a backer card. So it's like a piece of cardboard that has some kind of iconography on it and you just put the figure there and you throw it through a shrink wrap machine.
2: Uh, I think that this is a good... Fifth episode, because uh, I think our world is so closed in. Right, we go to Designer Con yeah. and we make what we make, and the, yeah. those people make what they make, and um, it's. We talk about some of these nations that are so closed off, but we're all closed off in our own little niche markets, our own little areas. Even when we talk about Designer Con and how there's like resin alley. Like that's yeah. just bootleggers or knockoff to- or handmade toys. or um, And so it's like. Well, let's that, be
3: honest. I mean, there was a lot of stuff outside of Resident Alley that is lifting from other intellectual property in the same way that the resin artists do. And maybe, yeah. we can, maybe we can circle back around to that next week. It's
2: a good, um, a good way for us to also look outside of ourselves and recognize that like, yeah, bootlegs is a term. And we, we use that so flippantly, but it means something to the rest of the world when we look and when yeah. we watch what everyone else has produced.
3: Yeah, because there is that there is that kind of value judgment that by using the term bootleg that we are ascribing, right? Generally mm-hmm. speaking, it's generally speaking, bootleg has been historically up till very recently in collector's cultures, a pejorative. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a 90s issue of the Star Wars Tops Galaxy Collector magazine, which was like Tops, like the card company published that was all about toys and cards and comics and all that stuff. And like the first issue, the the first major article in the first issue was how to spot fake Star Wars toys. And it's like now, right? 1998, you see that and it would be like, how to spot fake Star Wars toys because you don't want them in your collection because you don't want to be had now that those people, and I keep saying going back to this idea, but I still think it's, re- it's there's a lot of truth to it, is that the reason that people have changed their tone on bootlegs is they're no longer these kind of inauthentic, like sort of low fidelity garbage jokes that we talk about. And people actually like are interested in collecting them is simply because they run out of things to collect. Yeah. So it's changed the market in such a significant way. 10 years ago, if you wanted to get any of these things, 10, 15 years ago, if you wanted to get Mexican, Polish, Russian, Ninja Turtles, Star Wars, He-Man, Thundercat bootlegs, whatever, it would be even like cheaper to access them through the Western collector markets because there would be people who just happen to end up with them, rather than people who are like dedicated to sort of like buying and selling them now, mm-hmm. right? Um, like the value of those things has gone up in the West specifically because people in the West are like, well. What else am I gonna buy? All yeah. right, these things aren't so bad, right? And there are innumerable YouTube channels where people just make fun of how bad some bootlegs are. And I'm like, you're not appreciating those cultural objects in any way related to the culture that produced them. Mm-hmm. You are evaluating them with your sort of antiseptic, westernized that have been taught to equate authenticity with corporate licensing. Mm-hmm. Right. And that has nothing to do with sort of your experience of an object and everything to do with the values and the ideologies that you've been trained in, uh, sort of propagating. Yeah. Yeah. We need to be like critical of that discourse because that's what I think it is. You're right. That there was like, there was a time, I think that it's interesting to see the discourse around these kind of international bootlegs change. And these things are desirable objects again. Mm-hmm. Even with their sort of rough-hewn, imperfect, imprecise um, sort of manufacturing and, deco- like, you know, and the deco and everything. Like, <clears throat> that's actually my favorite thing about them. These are made largely by people who are non-experts in making toys. Yeah. Um, you know, with some exceptions, of course. But, like, in the, in, the, in the case of, like, Mexico City, like, these, you know, these are people who are just trying to make out a, eke out a living day to day by like rapidly painting a shitload of Lucha Libres and getting paid like literally like a couple of pesos for per figure and stuff. Yeah. Um, So there's like a level of what I consider to be non-expert craftsmanship that I think is fascinating and worth thinking about and privileging when we think about these things, rather Mm. than, oh, look at how rough and goofy this thing is. It's like, that was still made by someone by hand, tip to tail. And, yeah. and th- that to me means that they're worth sort of taking a little more seriously and giving a little more consideration to. Them.